Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Talk the Talk, and I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We will be joined by the Mayor of Northampton, Jean-Louis Scherer, in the second part of this hour. First, we are thrilled to have back with us State Senator Joe Comerford for her monthly time with us. Thank you, State Senator Joe Comerford, being with us. I'd like to begin by asking you, we have so much to go over this morning, but I'd love to begin by asking you, as you started your last newsletter to us, your constituents, about celebrating the life and work of Congressman John Olver. So I'd appreciate it if you would share your thoughts as we really come to the close to the conclusion of the time we're going to spend daily speaking about John Olver, but we have not heard from you, and I would love to. Well, um, thanks so much, uh, Bill and Buzz, for having me on. You know, uh, Congressman Olver, I called him a beloved giant um, because that's how I thought of him. I met Congressman Olver when I was at the American Friends Service Committee as an organizer. And, you know, <laughs> we were um, at the congressman's office and working um, on joint issues um, quite often during that time. Uh, and he was really a model of someone who was absolutely happy to engage with constituents, wanting to hear from constituents and also wanting constituents to come prepared to grapple with the complexity of issues. Uh, his brain went on forever, and so did his heart. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he called me to be a better organizer in my, um, my engagement with him, let's just say. You write in your newsletter about John Oliver, known for his boundless intellect and unparalleled call to public service, Congressman Oliver dedicated his life to making the Commonwealth and the nation more just and more just and equitable place for all. His long list of accomplishments is literally breathtaking. One aspect of John Oliver, both the person and the politician, that I have been asking a number of his former staffers and people who have worked who worked with him about is how he it was so effective for someone who was so a non-typical, and I think that's somewhat generous uh, description, politician. How did he get it done, notwithstanding that he's all the attributes we think of as the natural politician? Well, that, that were not on the forefront of the resume of John Oliver for things he was really good at. Help me understand. Well, I mean, think about his career. He was in the House, the State House, then the state Senate, and then Congress. So he dedicated his life to state service, and he saw it. By the time he got to Congress, he understood the impact of his work at the federal level, at the state level, right? That was one of the things that John was unbelievably good at, was he could see how a decision in Congress would affect a state like Massachusetts or a community like Northampton. Um, so he could see that. Uh, and he was skilled at understanding the rules and policies, procedures of government. You have to be good at that um, in order to be good at the job. You have to know what what is, what the foundation of the work is. Um, the congressman was also a terrific people person. He loved people. He loved his communities. I, and he had a great sense of humor, which I imagine one would need after such a lifetime of public service as Congressman Olver had, uh, because, you know, it can be punishing, this job, this public service job. 
Um, and the congressman, you know, handled it with a great deal of grace and goodwill and humor. Um, so, you know, there are many, many different pieces of what makes a good politician. And, uh, you know, there isn't one, as you know, Bill and Buzz, there isn't one resume for people who seek elected office. Many could say that I have no resume at all in order to be a state senator. And yet I endeavor every day to do the best job I can. Except that you have the skill of having been an organizer for many, many years and being the director of organizations that were involved sure. with the community and all that. John was a chemistry professor at the University of Massachusetts, not right, the usual career path. Vast, right. He had a vast brain. Yes. It just went on forever. And he had, he was called to serve. Um, and so, you know, and with a deep humility, goodwill, a vast brain, and he hired amazing people he was able to rise to the job. You know, he was also a trusted messenger. He said what was true and right. Uh, he, built, he built credibility. He built relationships. And he was able to, um, you know, he was able to go far in his career. And then when you look around at things like, for example, the Valley Flyer, uh, the, you know, the initial push for north-south rail, that was Congressman Olver. All over the North Quabbin, you can see Congressman Olver uh, in Franklin County, in Greenfield. You know, the transit station was because of Congressman Olver at UMass, this building dedicated to the sciences, right? Design, um, climate resilient design. That's the congressman. So he had, you know, an intersecting, um, almost prescient um, set of issues that he was moving during his career um, that all came to fruition, or many came to fruition. I'm sure if he um, were to tell us, he would tell us about things that he wasn't able to do, but he was able to do so very much for people's lives. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for those words about Congressman John Oliver. Uh, Senator Joe Comerford, I would like to ask you about a piece of news that was delivered unto the people of Massachusetts, I guess last week, maybe the week before, which were something that well, sounds a little snoozy, but is actually so, so very important to all of us. And that is something called committee assignments. Sounds like, oh, my goodness, it's homework. But in fact, it's really <laughs> important. It's a matter of which senators and representatives serve on and have influence over committees, which is to say influence on and uh, influence on legislation that's going to affect all of us for many, many years to come. And you were appointed chair of the Joint Committee on Higher Education, which is obviously extraordinarily important to this region. I'd appreciate how you see that appointment and how you anticipate using that important platform and position going forward. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. So I was very pleased with the committee assignments that the Senate president um, handed out for me and for our region I do think that uh, public higher education has been a place where I have been quite active over the last, you know, the first two sessions, the first four years that I've been serving. Um, and, you know, clearly the Senate president and the governor are talking about a transformational investment in public higher education with the fair share amendment funds and beyond that. So, you know, I, I'm excited to roll up my sleeves and get work done. Um, you know, on the heels of a really great committee. You know, many other people have had this committee, so I get to take the reins for this period of time. I'm also the vice chair of a, a new committee on agriculture, 
I'm the Assistant Vice Chair of the Senate Committee on Ways and Means. And then I, uh, I was appointed to a number of really great committees, uh, including economic development, um, racial civil rights and inclusion, global warming and climate change, and rules. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I have some really wonderful substantive places to dig in on my committee work in addition to the bill work and everything else we'll do. The Joint Committee on Agriculture. I guess we should go back for one second. A joint committee. Explain to our listeners who don't know what a joint committee is. Sure. So in the legislature, we have joint committees held uh, by the House and Senate together. And then we have House committees and Senate committees. So um, I'm a member of two Senate committees. There's a Global Warming and Climate Change Committee and a Committee on Rules. Those are Senate committees. And then the ECDEV um, and um, Racial Equity and Civil Rights and Inclusion are joint committees. And so is Agriculture. I was very excited to see that there is now a committee, a joint committee on agriculture. What came, what, what precipitated that? Well, you know, I think over the last years, it's, you know, because of members' interest and because, of course, we represent the best people, there's been a growing understanding um, about the importance of farms and farmers, farm workers and the food system. Uh, you know, COVID showed us how very important it was for us to have a robust food system and food system infrastructure, uh, because, boy, we needed it in the middle of a global pandemic to feed the people of the Commonwealth. And in some places, it was very, very strong. And in some places, we saw the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, Rep. Blay and I have filed together a number of farm bills, um, and they got very far last session. Uh, they, you know, passed the Senate in the Economic Development Bond Bill. They did not make it further because, as you know, the Economic Development Bond Bill failed. Um, but And it was very, very disappointing. But I do, I do think, at least I'll speak only on the Senate side, that um, that there is a keen interest in farming and, and the ecosystem around farming, and that's infrastructure and workers and farmers and how to really sustain it, both in good times and in bad. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited for this. I think it was a smart decision that the Senate president and the speaker made. You'll remember maybe that she came out early um, last session and put on big boots and tromped around Western Mass Farms, speaking with farmers. And, um, and uh, I think she learned a ton and opened her both her heart and her mind to this. Which I think is obvious, which I, th I think it obviously is really important in particular for this region. So I, th I think that's a really, Agreed. really important development. I I'd like I to, agree with you. I'd love to uh, ask you, I was, it was really, really, I, I brought a smile to my face, your uh, uh, most recent newsletter to your constituents and had kind of a checklist of things that had happened, including getting sworn in and choosing a Senate president, uh, which you were obviously very involved in. Uh, and the list goes on. And another check mark. It says file sixty-five bills on January twentieth. Sixty-five bills. Uh, that's a lot of work, Senator Comerford. I was wondering if you would be kind enough to highlight for us some of your legislative priorities that are uh, represented by those bills. Sure. Thanks. Um, and you know, I should say that that's that's just the bills that I have as a uh, as a senator. Um, with great House members, I will also fight for 
what are called home rule petitions, which are bills filed by um, municipalities. So all told, we're at 72 and counting. We imagine going up to probably about 80 in the end. Um, so we we file generally in similar issues, um, uh, education, climate change, health care, economic development, transportation, uh, racial equity. Um, you know, in the healthcare space, I have a, a number of bills, including um, allowing spouses to be caregivers and really breaking down barriers for certified nursing assistants. In the education space, of course, I have something called the Cherish Act, which is that transformational investment in public higher education. I also have a bill to de-link MCAS from high stakes, so to remove the high stakes requirement for MCAS testing. Um, in the equity space, I have a bill to ban uh, native mascots in the Commonwealth, also to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day and to stop the construction of new prison and jails. In the climate space, I have a ton, um, including holding uh, utilities accountable to not charge more um, than neighboring states are for energy, but much more than that in terms of continuing the journey that Rep. Lay have been on and I have been on on reforming the Department of Public Utilities. I also have a bill related to PFAS on farms. You'll remember I had a huge PFAS bill, but then there was a big task force. Um, so I just, I, there is a big PFAS bill out that I am supporting to turn off the tap, if you will, on PFAS. But I added a piece that wasn't in that big bill, which was focused on farms, on economic development and municipalities. I have a lot to help municipalities close gaps, things like reforming the payment in lieu of taxes formula or pilot formula, setting up a municipal building authority uh, and more. Um, and I think, well, I, I can go on and on. Yeah, well, that's, that sounds like enough to keep. On, um, it sounds like enough to keep Senator you busy. <laughs> yes, it's, it's good. Um, it's all on SenatorJoeComerford.org. Um, SenatorJoeComerford.org is um, is where the bills are. We are speaking with Senator Joe Comerford, the senator for the Franklin Hampshire. Worcester District, or is it the Hampshire-Franklin Worcester District? Or it's the... Hampshire-Franklin Worcester. Okay, yeah. thank you. And we're going to take a quick few minutes for some of our sponsors. When we come back, I want to ask Senator Comerford about her Death with Dignity bill, among others. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Meet Sister Holiday, a chain-smoking, heavily tattooed queer nun turned amateur sleuth in Scorched Grace, a new mystery novel by local author Margot Duahi. Pick up Scorched Grace at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Browse Broadside to your heart's content. Order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Some people know how to prepare seafood. Seafood's delicate. You don't want a heavy hand. 
Some people have the touch. Some of those people are in the kitchen at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, where there's a 40-year tradition of preparing seafood, wisdom passed along through the years. That's why when you have fish and chips at Paul and Elizabeth's, or Faroe Island salmon, or tempura shrimp with that light and lively orange ginger sauce, it's perfect every time. Fresh seafood, Paul and Elizabeth's, inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. In today's competitive hiring environment, job seekers demand stability, competitive salary, generous benefits, work-life balance, and a path to retirement. The Massachusetts Department of Correction can offer all of those things. This is the perfect time to join the team as a correction officer and take advantage of the accelerated hiring process in a career that's challenging yet rewarding and allows one to make a positive difference in the lives of others by providing custody care and support programs for those under supervision. Salaries start at $62,000 and include a pension plan, health, dental, and vision insurance, as well as paid sick, personal, and comp time. Get full pay during your academy training, education pay, tuition reimbursement, and the option of early retirement after 20 years. If you have never considered a career in corrections, now is the perfect time. Apply today at mass.gov doc recruitment. Start your rewarding career at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Paid for by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with State Senator Joe Comerford, who is the senator for the Hampshire, Franklin, and Worcester District. We are going to talk about the death with dignity proposed legislation in just a moment. But first, I'd like to ask the senator about the Ways and Means Committee meeting, hearing, that's going to happen here in western Massachusetts. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, So when the governor filed her budget, which she did on March 1st, and we should just say for listeners, it's usually in January, but a first-term governor, any first-term governor, gets until March 1st-ish. Moore got hers right in on time. Um, So it kicks off a Ways and Means hearing season. So the first hearing is tomorrow in the State House when all the cabinet officials will come and talk about their budget. It's a 55.5% billion dollar proposal. So it's quite consequential. It's a game changer, you might say. Um, So tomorrow we'll kick off with the chairs of Ways and Means, Chair Rodericks, Chair Michaelwitz, and then the committee hits the road. And it hits the road in six six different locations across the Commonwealth, bringing these issues um, to local communities um, by through invitation only hearings. And so on March 13th, we'll be at the University of Massachusetts. It's the first one um, on the road. Um, So we'll be at UMass Amherst, and we're going to be talking about education and local aid. Um, And then we'll be at other locations across the Commonwealth until we hit um, the end of the hearing season, which is it's very, very compressed because the House has to go into budgeting very soon. Um, So uh, it's going to, you know, it'll hit March, early April. Um, in the end, at, at the end of this, uh, the Ways and Means hearing cycle for a public hearing at the State House. And of course, it'll also be remote. Um, so it'll be very exciting. Um, and it's really important to note that, you know, the House will do a budget not necessarily based on the governor's budget, but I was saying earlier during the break, they're like siblings. Um, the House will have a blueprint. So House lawmakers will have a lot to say about the kinds of priorities they want. And then they'll kick it over to the Senate, and the Senate will do a budget in um, 
sort of beginning in the first week of May, going all the way till the end of May, um, filing amendments, debating, voting. Uh, and then there'll be a committee formed, a joint committee to reconcile the House and Senate's uh, version of the budget before sending it back to the governor. So it's a cycle that happens once a year um, and hopefully concludes by July 1st, which is the beginning of the state fiscal year. It's astounding to me that this process works. Somehow at the end of it, there's a budget. There are billions and billions of dollars at stake. There are thousands of different components of this of this uh, of this bill of this legislation that affect everyone across the Commonwealth. And I'm absolutely. A, I'm a little unclear. How do you put all those pieces together? I mean, you gave us the broad overview, but in fact, different senators and different representatives have different priorities and different things they're pushing for. How does it all come together? Well, God bless the Ways and Means committees and their staff. It is it is daunting because. You know, $55.5 billion represents, as you say, thousands, likely tens of thousands of choices. Um, it rec- represents direct spending to programs which affect Western Massachusetts um, directly. Uh, parameters of programs change also during the budget. So there are both the inside, that's the numbers, and then the outside. Those are policy choices that will also be reflected in the budget. So it's quite consequential. Um, and then, of course, folks will file, uh, you know, thousands of earmarks. And some of them will be for local spending. Some of them will be for statewide spending. And some of them will be outside sections or more policies on top of that. Um, so the churn of these next handful of months is really not to be understated. Um, but it will come together through a pretty, uh, I think, pretty exciting process and one in which the public has a lot to say about. Um, A lot, a lot, a lot, right? Because we work for the public uh, between now and um, or between tomorrow when it kicks off uh, officially at the legislative side uh, and July 1st. Senator Comerford, I'm not sure I heard correctly, uh, but the hearing of the Ways and Means Committee at UMass Amherst, I thought I heard you say that it was by invitation only. I take it it's public, but could you... Uh, explain that sure. to me, please. The, traditionally, this is my first year doing this work, Bill. Um, so traditionally, uh, the first hearing is with the administration officials, the six hearings on the road. Uh, the committee and the people chairing the hearings invite people to testify in these um, these regional locations. Uh, so I am you know, both getting a list from Ways and Means on the House and the Senate side uh, and also thinking through... Uh, who should be invited. Uh, For example, you know, we're inviting the MTA to testify, Max Page, who you have on your show. Um, You know, so he's the president of the MTA, so we're inviting Max to talk to us about the spending, Uh, but other people as well. So I'm trying to add a rural lens to this to make sure that, you know, my Boston friends who are out listening to the testimony and looking at the numbers really look at them through the eyes of of rural communities, so a rural town administrator, for example, um, a rural superintendent, a rural child care provider, um, because I do think we have a different story to tell. Senator Comerford, in the 
minute or two we have left, I would appreciate it if we could return to the question of the legislation you have proposed and have been working on for quite some time now, which is the Death with Dignity Bill. Can you tell us what's in it and whether you think it will actually pass this year? Yeah, thank you so much, Bill, for um, for bringing this up. I can't believe I didn't mention it in the lineup of bills that are priorities for me. This one is a sincere priority. Uh, so it is a, it's a physician-assisted um, method of ending one's life for a very small cohort of people, those who have uh, been given a terminal diagnosis of six months or fewer. Um, it's a tense, the bill embodies a 10-step process that people go through, um, which includes witnesses, and it includes a wellness screening. It includes uh, information given about hospice alternatives, many, many steps um, to get to uh, the ability for a physician to prescribe life-ending medication for someone who could take it themselves. So that's another criteria. Six months or few, fewer terminal diagnosis, the person is of sound mind and can administer their own medication. Uh, so that is the bill that is uh, before the legislature. It's been filed by me and leader Jim O'Day and Representative Ted Phillips. These are extraordinary folks on the House side. Um, there's a strong advocacy community. This bill is among the strongest uh, in the nation, I believe, in terms of protections. Uh, it has been, you're right, I've heard it twice in public health as chair. Uh, the first time I worked on it a bunch um, when it was before my committee, and I feel very sure of what we, the guardrails and parameters we put in. I passed it again as lead sponsor last year, uh, and now I'm no longer public health chair, but I, you can bet that I've talked to my colleague on the Senate side, Senator Sear, about giving this bill an early hearing and hopefully getting it out of committee with time for it to make it through the process, right? Bills get out of committee, but then they have to go to destination committees. They have to come before the bodies on the House and the Senate side, and then they probably have to be reconciled. All of this takes many months. And so if we don't get it out soon, we won't have the runway we need to get this bill done. So it's a it's, work is already underway, urging it to be expedited this session. Senator Joe Comerford, we thank you. As Buzz was saying during the break, what an amazing amount of work you do, really. It's, it's, so, well, it's really impressive. Remember, I work with a great team and with great colleagues. Um, so when I talk about I, I'm really talking about me plus five. Um, and that's true for any legislator, you know, any senator for sure. Um, and House members don't, <laughs> don't have as many staff, so I, my hat off to them. Um, as they grapple with this work, for sure. Senator Joe Comerford is with us every month, the first Monday of the month, usually. Senator Comerford, thanks so very much for your time. Thanks so very much for your representation. Thanks for having me. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Three new restaurants could be coming to Northampton. The License Commission approved a transfer of a wine and malt license that previously belonged to Wine Witch to the Gumbo Oyster Bar that will open at the same location on Main Street. The Commission also approved a license for a new coffee shop planned for Florence and new restaurant called the Saratoga Sports Bar, also planned for Florence.
UMass is warning about a TikTok drinking trend after 28 ambulances were summoned to off-campus parties during the Blarney blowout weekend. Students were observed carrying jugs with a mixture of alcohol, electrolytes, flavoring, and water, dubbed blackout rage gallons, or Borgs, in a binge drinking trend gaining traction on TikTok. There were so many calls for ambulances for student alcohol intoxication that neighboring agencies had to step in to help. In a statement, the university said the weekend's events will be assessed and steps will be taken to improve alcohol education. A Florence man was arrested on Friday after a hit and run that left two police cruisers damaged. This happened around 6.20 p.m. Northampton officers got a report of a hit and run where the suspect's vehicle had crashed into another car and then fled the scene. The officers found the vehicle and attempted to do a traffic stop but the vehicle failed to stop. The vehicle crashed into a curb, causing multiple tires to pop, but the suspect still did not stop. The vehicle drove down another dead-end street and got to the point where he could not continue driving. The suspect got out of the vehicle and fled. He was quickly arrested. Due to the multiple crashes in Northampton, the entire shift was on this call, including officers from the midnight shift who were contacted to report in early to assist. For today, it'll be mostly sunny and breezy. Highs 42 to 46. Tonight, look for increasing clouds. Overnight lows 22 to 26. And the outlook for Tuesday, chance for a rain or snow shower in the morning. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El expresidente Donald Trump puede ser demandado por agentes de la policía del Capitolio lesionados y legisladores demócratas por la insurrección del 6 de enero de 2021 en el Capitolio de Estados Unidos, dijo el jueves el Departamento de Justicia en un caso en la Corte Federal que prueba la vulnerabilidad legal de Trump por su discurso antes de los disturbios. En documentos judiciales, el Departamento de Justicia le dijo a un Tribunal Federal de Apelaciones en Washington que debería permitir que las demandas avancen, rechazando el argumento de Trump de que es inmune a los reclamos. Un portavoz de Trump dijo el jueves que el presidente pidió repetidamente la paz, el patriotismo y el respeto por nuestros hombres y mujeres que hacen cumplir la ley el 6 de enero y que los tribunales deberían fallar a favor del presidente Trump en breve y desestimar estas declaraciones frívolas. En otras informaciones, se ha producido un cambio de nombre en el hogar de los soldados en Holyoke, así como una nueva cadena de mando para los servicios de veteranos en el estado, tres años después de que un brote mortal de COVID-19 cobrara la vida de casi 80 veteranos. Se estableció una nueva oficina ejecutiva de servicios para veteranos y la administración Healy Driscoll anunció que el doctor John Santiago será el nuevo secretario. Santiago es comandante de la Reserva del Ejército de los Estados Unidos, ex representante estatal y médico de la sala de emergencias. El paso mejora la cadena de mando, que es algo que según el senador estatal John Billis debería haber sido mejor durante el brote mortal de COVID-19 en el hogar de soldados de Holyoke en 2020. El hogar de los soldados de Holyoke ahora se llama Hogar de Veteranos de Massachusetts en Holyoke. Con esta actualización, los hogares también tendrán que solicitar y mantener ciertas licencias y certificaciones del Departamento de Salud Pública y serán inspeccionados dos veces al año. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And if it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on WHMP on our show, Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this mayor this Monday is Gina Weishera, the mayor of Northampton. Madam Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. I would love to 
ask you about a front page story, I think last week's Daily Hampshire Gazette, about Eric Schur and his licenses and the closed venues. And I know, as mayor, you don't sit on the licensing commissions, but I just have a feeling you know a fair amount about this. So help us out. What is happening? We're talking about uh, the Iron Horse, the Calvin, uh, I think the Green Room still, and maybe other mm-hmm. venues as well. Uh, Eric Schur is an important figure and an important owner of properties here in Northampton, venues that were crucial in many ways, to the revitalization of Northampton decades ago. But those venues are now shuttered and have been for, well, quite a bit of time, uh, going really to the beginning of the pandemic. Help us understand what's happening, if you would, please. Mayor. Sure, sure. Good morning, everybody. Um, so as you know, as you said, the, the License Commission is our local licensing authority and has all the powers to grant, suspend, or revoke licenses and permits. Um, and so they, um, as you were just saying, you know, some, there are some venues that have not really reopened since the pandemic began. There are um, lots of other venues that have opened. So um, they have been looking at these five venues um, that are not really reopening and trying to, you know, our, the most important thing, I think, from their perspective is that um, those licenses are being used, right? Like we have limited licenses, which we've talked about, and we want to make sure that they're being used. So on February 14th, they revoked a license for Pearl Street, um, which has not really reopened since the pandemic, and, and didn't they didn't see any indication that there were plans for it to reopen. Um, Mr. Stewart has, has appealed that to the state's um, ABCC, which is the Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission, um, and so we will see what happens with that license. Um, and so it is sort of on hold. I think they were, the, if they were to successfully take that license back, they would do what they've done uh, sort of in the recent past, which is um, have a lottery for that. So that is, uh, it will remain to be seen what happens with that license. Then there are four other venues. So there's the Iron Horse in the Green Room, um, and the conversation with Mr. Sewer is that um, he says that there are plans to reopen those, um, and so they've given him till June 1st to utilize the license for those two locations. Um, the basement is, is another location, and he um, says that there are extensive renovations that are happening there. He is hoping that a new restaurant is going to come into that location, um, and there's been an application, I believe, a granted building permit. Um, so... He's at the next License Commission meeting in April. Um, He's supposed to update the commission on um, plans for any new restaurant going in there. And he said that even if uh, he does not get a new tenant, then he would reopen the basement. Um, And then the fifth location is the Calvin, which has been the most active, I would say, of all of the venues, having some events here and there in the last few months. So there's nothing – there the commission's not taking action on that license at the moment. The June 1st date, could you focus on that for one second and tell us the importance of it? I want to go back and make sure I understand correctly. June 1st, it's kind of a drop-dead date. Show us you're going to actually use these venues uh, and reopen them, or we're going to take the license, license meaning the liquor licenses, I assume, back. Is that, is that a correct understanding? 
so again, I'm not the licensing commission, but my um, my understanding is that they have said we need to see some some real action by June 1st. We need to see that steps are being taken, that those venues are open are open by June 1st, or it's very clear that they are in the process of opening. Um, you know, you and I have both read in the paper and and um, seen from the commission meeting that. Um, Mr. Seward says that he's having a hard time booking these venues. Um, so I guess he is going to focus on trying to get um, at least, you know, the Iron Horse um, to be, he has said, to, to have it function and work, it really needs to have, um, be open a certain number of nights a week. And so he's looking to try and book to be able to, uh, to sustain that, the kitchen and the license. Right, and he has problems now that he didn't have before the pandemic, frankly, because there are other venues that are comparable in terms of size and a potential audience. So it's a much more competitive environment for those 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 acts, uh, those performance performers, those artists, those musicians, than it was before the pandemic. I, I would like to ask you, uh, Mayor, about the relationship between these licenses and these venues and the story on the front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette headline above the fold, Dateline Northampton, city may soon get three new restaurants with this beginning paragraph. The city may soon get a new New Orleans theme restaurant downtown along with a new coffee shop and a new sports bar in Florence. Mm -hmm. That sounds pretty exciting in terms of uh, the city uh, and its kind of rebirth post-pandemic. Can you tell us about those and whether there's any relationship between the licenses we've been talking about and the opening of these three new restaurants? Well, it is very exciting. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about um, my office's, you know, just hard work and um, an emphasis on, on doing economic development and trying to bring in, breathe new life um, to downtown and support our existing businesses. So, you know, recently we um, and the council voted for um, having, uh, bringing in some, some, so appealing to the state to have some additional liquor licenses added. Um, we know that it's absolutely critical for restaurants that they have a liquor license. So the, play, the restaurant that's going into where Wine Witch was, they are going to um, utilize a wine and malt license. Um, whether in the future they would like to go for an all-alcohol license, we'll see. But that is, um, we know how important it is to be able to bring in new restaurants um, that that they we can offer a license, um, which is why we're trying to expand those licenses and why it's absolutely critical that the licenses we have are being utilized, which is the focus of the license commission. So. Is the opening of any of these restaurants dependent on getting a new license or permission for new licenses from the state or the city is in, uh, is a, is, it has what it needs at this point for those three new restaurants to open? Um, as far as I know, I mean, so the, the wine and malts um, they're able to get. And as far as I know, the, the bar um, is taking over a license that was um, being used by um, a different venue uh, in that location. So um, I'm, and then the coffee shop I don't think is, is looking for a license at this moment. So um, as of right now, they seem to have what they need. 
One last question going back to Eric Schur and his venues for just a moment. Is this a uh, process that you feel confident is going to result in utilization of those licenses? And my concern is, and I think a concern of a lot of listeners is, uh, we, we are familiar with how long the process went on with the old church uh, that is now going to be the Resilience Center. And the track record here about utilization of licenses and things being done quickly, how to put this, isn't great. I don't know if you care to comment on that or not, but uh, it's a concern I have, and I think many listeners do too. I would say that this license commission clearly um, is very focused on this and is trying to make sure that every license we have is utilized, and um, this is not something that they're going to um, sort of put aside. So I think they need to see really positive movements uh, for those licenses to stay with their current owner. Mayor, I'd like to turn to another topic, also front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette recently, and that is the uh, distribution of ARPA funds, which sounded like a fascinating process. And I Mm. wish you could review that for our listeners and also tell us how it came out and how you see the utilization of those funds, and it's a substantial amount of money, how it will affect the economy and the well-being of the city. Sure. So we apportioned um, 18.4% of our ARPA funds. So again, this is American Rescue Plan Act uh, funds towards community recovery grant awards. So um, that was a decision we made. Not every community made that, but uh, it was important to me that we really set aside a significant amount to help the community recover. Um, You know, this is in recognition of how hard the pandemic was on the community and small businesses and downtown, nonprofits, arts and culture organizations. Um, And of course, the increased needs that we saw around housing security um, and food insecurity and and houselessness. So um, we engaged the community in in, um, a, in a process that began uh, with the former mayor in the fall of 21 um, with a survey, which uh, many, many people participated in. Um, and with that, people were able to sort of express their own, um, the impacts they felt personally and identify the areas where they felt um, community help was needed. And so from that, uh, I appointed an advisory committee um, of community experts in those sort of different areas that were identified, and um, and two city councilors also were part of that committee, and they did a remarkable job of reaching out to the community with our grant administrator um, here in the mayor's office, and they conducted eight listening sessions. So in addition to that survey, then um, we went out and did eight listening sessions, all different areas of the city, in person and online. Um, and then uh, they, the committee created a process for applications and for evaluating those applications. And it was wildly successful. Um, there were 98 different projects that were submitted, um, totaling a little bit over $20 million in requests for, again, $4 million that um, had been designated. So that was a really, I think, successful process. Um, and everyone did a great job of getting the word out. And um, the, you know, the focus was on three areas, supporting recovery, reconnecting community, and building resilience within Northampton. So um, it was exciting to see all the projects come in. People really 
dreamt big about some of them. We had lots of very large requests, which uh, made it, I think, a bit challenging um, at times, but um, we were able to sort of go back and look at those areas that had been identified and then really prioritize how to um, designate those funds. So and I'm really proud of the process. Did the priorities include how th these groups would utilize the money and how that that would affect the economy and benefit the economy of the city? Was that part of it? Well, one of the areas that um, was, is an accepted use of these funds is to um, support small businesses and so to support our downtown. So that was certainly one of the things that we looked at and one of the areas. So, um, you know, I, there are many different things I and the committee use to sort of make judgments about um, where, where we th think these funds would be well used. Some of it was, you know, is, is the request proportional to um, what the positive impact will be? Um, do we think that there, these are federal funds, so there is a great deal of reporting that has to happen um, quarterly. And so do we feel like um, this project would be able to fulfill the obligations around receiving those funds? Um, and it was just really important to, for me that the projects benefit Northampton. So every community received ARPA funds. Um, and Northampton decided to dedicate some of its ARPA funds to community uh, recovery. And so, um, you know, we, there were all sorts of projects that had sort of wide benefits or maybe were more um, focused on countywide or had different reaches, but um, it was really important to me that there was a very direct impact for Northampton on the use of these funds. We are speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Jean Louise Scherer. When we come back, I have three areas we're going to quickly talk about. One is reparations in Northampton, alternatives to policing and update, and what are the big plans for downtown? We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. GreenfieldSavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.coop. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home edition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. We are speaking with the mayor of Northampton, Jean-Louis Scherer. Mayor, quick updates, if we could, please, on three really important issues. First, alternatives to policing in Northampton. Where is that uh, effort at? Could you give us an update, please? Sure. So um, the Division of Community Care is, um, we are actively working on it right now. We're actually going to have um, an announcement very soon on it. Um, we are hiring a director of that division. Um, and uh, there's actually supposed to be an update, I think, maybe today um, at the City Council Com- uh, Committee on Community Resources, but unfortunately that was canceled by them. So um, April 17th at that committee, there's going to be a full um, conversation about where DCC, Division of Community Care, stands and um, all of the, the work and planning that's been going on this year and, and um, the very immediate plans for the spring and summer um, around that department. So um, it's very exciting. Division of Community Care being that part of the city, that component of the city structure that is the alternatives to police responses. Is that right? Correct. So this is a di- this is response for um, mental health and um, substance use, non-criminal calls. Um, and so they, there's been a lot of work, and we've been working um, with many different consultants over the last year to uh, start to hire responders, and um, we're getting very, very close. So it's, um, we're taking sort of big leaps with the division at this moment, and it's very, very exciting. Another issue very much in the news, the proposal at City Council for, a repara- for reparations here in Northampton. Could you give us a quick update on where you think that stands? Sure. So I'm very happy to be working with the sponsors um, of uh, who brought the resolution forward, which are Councilors Perry, Gore, and Elkins. Um, and in the next month, we are going to be sort of setting up a framework around um, 
that you know the requests in in the resolution, which includes a commission to uh, to sort of study the issue and and talk about how we can um, you know look look at the different possibilities, but also how we can be a more welcoming environment for um, for people of color in general and for black residents in particular. Last topic, we have a minute left. Picture Main Street, an enormous topic of conversation for a long time. It's kind of faded from the, at least the front pages of our local papers. Uh, Picture Main Street, it's, we're getting kind of moving along. It's going to happen in the next few years. Where does that stand, the big changes on Main Street? Yes, so time marches forward, and we are getting closer to closer, so closer and closer. It is still um, on schedule to begin um, in 2025. And so again, this is a mass DOT project. We're getting $16 million from the state to redesign Main Street, make it safer. It, primarily, it's a safety issue. Um, there are we have very wide Main Street, and uh, it's a bit tough for pedestrians. So there are going to be changes to make it safer, but also to have more public space. And we've seen in the past few years how critical um, space is for outdoor dining and things that people really love. Um, so we want to make more space for people and um, also make it a safer Main Street. So that project is moving forward, and uh, again, we're looking at 2025. We leave it there. This is Mayor's Monday. We've been speaking with the Mayor of Northampton, Jean louis Scherer. Thank you so much for your time every month, Mayor. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill and Buzz. Good to be with you. That's why I wrote this lyric to say to you Black is back and you should be happy to Live in an age where we could really get some Not like our ancestors running from the gun We don't have to deal with no wits and chains All we have to do is just gain Respect from the brothers, sisters, and mothers Just stay together The hell with the other Cause we don't need no help to be strong We need to be proud, we need to keep moving on Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Paul Gauguin Cruises. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. The Norfolk Southern Railroad Company's just announced new safety plans after last month's toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Correspondent Cami McCormick has our top story. Norfolk Southern announced today a six-point plan to increase safety, including adding 200 temperature detectors on tracks and other sensors which would analyze vibrations for potential problems. The company says these measures come after the NTSB found the Ohio derailment resulted from an overheat axle on one of the train cars. Another Norfolk Southern train derailed near Springfield, Ohio over the weekend. An investigation is underway into a deadly crush at a rap concert in Rochester, New York last night. Police Chief David Smith says one woman was killed, three other people were critically injured in a massive rush to the exits. Preliminary reports from people at this scene indicate that these injuries were caused from people being trampled. 
We do not have any evidence of gunshots being fired or of anyone being shot or stabbed at the scene. Officials are asking concert goers to send cell phone video to help them determine what triggered the panic. The FBI is offering $50,000 in reward money for information that leads to arrests in the case of four U.S. citizens assaulted and kidnapped in northern Mexico. CBS's Christina Ruffini. One woman walking on her own was forced into a white pickup truck. Men armed with long guns and wearing bulletproof vests are then seen dragging one person after another into the vehicle. The FBI says they drove across the border from Brownsville, Texas, into Matamoros Friday. Southwest says a flight from Cuba to Fort Lauderdale was forced to return to Havana after a bird strike. The airline says the engine caught fire and the cabin filled with smoke before emergency oxygen masks deployed. No injuries reported. Passengers were put on a different flight to Florida. More than 130,000 utility customers in Kentucky have no power after tornadoes and thunderstorms that swept through last week. WKYT reporter Jeremy Toms is in Lexington. KU says its crews have been working 16-hour shifts, and they've had to deal with hundreds of broken poles, more than 2,500 power wires taken out, all by Friday's historic winds. KU says it's the third most significant weather event in the past 20 years, and that affected 346,000 customers at its peak. NBA standout Ja Morant will miss at least two games after a live social media post showing him holding a gun at a nightclub, the way this Grizzlies fan sees it. That's definitely not what you want to see, but, you know, Ja Morant is a, uh, a superstar, you know what I'm saying, and he's young. This is CBS News. CBS News is brought to you by Paul Gauguin Cruises. Artfully authentic, all-inclusive year-round cruising to Tahiti and the South Pacific. Visit pgcruises.com today. Guys, stop putting your love life on hold. U.S. Pharmacy has some exciting news. If you've been wanting to try Viagra or Cialis, now's the perfect time. Call today and receive 90 little blue or little yellow pills for only $119 with free shipping. Why order some low-dose sildenafil from one of those subscription services when we can give you what you want now? Call 800-711-6818 and we'll rush your order discreetly packaged to your door. 800-711-6818. Yeah, I'm so stressed. Our business is growing. We've got people all over now. Uma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 50 features. Uma? Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Just $24.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Uma. Now you're feeling it. Find Small Business Calm at Uma.com slash radio. That's O-O-M-A. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Three new restaurants could be coming to Northampton. The License Commission approved a transfer of a wine and malt license that previously belonged to Wine Witch to the Gumbo Oyster Bar that will open at the same location on Main Street. The commission also approved a license for a new coffee shop planned for Florence and new restaurant called the Saratoga Sports Bar, also planned for Florence. UMass is warning about a TikTok drinking trend after 28 ambulances were summoned to off-campus parties during the Blarney blowout weekend. Students were observed carrying jugs with a mixture of alcohol, electrolytes, flavoring, and water, dubbed blackout rage gallons, or Borgs, in a binge drinking trend gaining traction on TikTok. There were so many calls for ambulances for student alcohol intoxication that neighboring agencies had to step in to help. In a statement, the university said the weekend's events will be assessed and steps will be taken to improve alcohol education. A Florence man was arrested on Friday after a hit-and-run that left two police cruisers damaged. 
This happened around 6.20 p.m. Northampton officers got a report of a hit and run where the suspect's vehicle had crashed into another car and then fled the scene. The officers found the vehicle and attempted to do a traffic stop, but the vehicle failed to stop. The vehicle crashed into a curb, causing multiple tires to pop, but the suspect still did not stop. The vehicle drove down another dead-end street and got to the point where he could not continue driving. The suspect got out of the vehicle and fled. He was quickly arrested. Due to the multiple crashes in Northampton, the entire shift was on this call, including officers from the midnight shift who were contacted to report in early to assist. For today, it'll be mostly sunny and breezy. Highs 42 to 46. Tonight, look for increasing clouds. Overnight lows 22 to 26. And the outlook for Tuesday, chance for a rain or snow shower in the morning. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And Bill, we are blessed every month with First Monday. It's called First Monday because the Supreme Court begins every session on the first Monday in October. And we have with us constitutional scholar, law professor Bruce Miller. Hello, Bruce. Hey, Buzz. Hey, Bill. Good to be back with you guys. Great to see you here in studio. So uh, what do we have this month? Well, we had an oral argument uh, this last week on Wednesday about whether or not uh, President Biden's education department was legally authorized to forgive a substantial amount of student loan debt uh, that has been owed by students and former students to the federal government for loans that they've uh, received in in the last couple of decades. A huge issue all over the country, but in this region when we have so many uh, universities and colleges, it's a really important issue. Extremely important issue, a lot lot of money, a lot of well-being at stake. And and from from my angle, as somebody who's been looking at these uh, relationships between the parts of the government for, for a few decades now, This is a case that for most of our history, at least our history in the 20th century uh, and early part of the 21st, would have been a very, very easy case. Of course, the president has the authority through the education department to waive this student loan debt. So what's changed? Well, what's changed is the Supreme Court. It's true that presidents in our country can't simply do whatever they want to do. Uh, Their job is to faithfully execute the laws. That's their primary constitutional obligation. But there's a law here, a statute that Congress passed in 2003, uh, uh, right after 9-11 and during the run-up to the Iraq War, that was designed initially to to protect students who were also going into the military from being forced to repay loans uh, while they were serving. But the statute, importantly, gives to the president the authority in a national emergency to waive or modify, that's the language, the conditions of the loan program. The emergency that President Biden saw here was COVID and the impact, the economic burden that COVID placed on many people trying to pay back their loans. So we've got a statute of law passed by Congress that authorizes the president to do this. The president does it. Ever since the Roosevelt administration back in the 1930s, this has been conventional wisdom. 
It no longer is because of an idea called the major questions doctrine. What is the major questions doctrine? The major questions doctrine is something that has been fashioned in the last two years by the Trump majority on the Supreme Court. The concept is that any time the uh, president or part of the executive branch uh, wants to do something that would have a, a major political or economic impact on the country, a general authorization from Congress, like waive or modify, is not enough. Congress has to have passed, according to this idea, a specific law that anticipates the precise problem, names it, and authorizes the president to address it. All Congress had to do was predict that COVID was going to happen, and then it would be legal. Other if, than that, if this is if such only. bogus nonsense. It, well, it, it, it is. It is. It is It is an invention, and, and it's an opportunistic invention if what you want to do is to cripple the capacity of the federal government essentially to uh, uh, ameliorate uh, the abuses that can result from, from a, a market society. I just want to rewind, uh, Professor Bruce Miller sure. and Bill. Uh, feel free to comment. that We're talking about a major impact on so many millions of people's yes. lives. We're estimating it's a $400 billion uh, relief endeavor that President Biden wants to have. These are crippling loans. I know myself, we had two little kids. I was right out of law school and I, I had a $99 mortgage at that time yep. a month, yep. but paying off that loan yes. was a hardship for me, yes. I think for about 10 years. Yep. And I was lucky. It was before it maybe became crippling uh, yep. tuition yep. levels. Yep. My younger daughter and her husband are still paying off student loans. They've got the means to do it, uh, fortunately, but still there they are. But the legal question, Bruce yep. Miller, is whether or not Congress authorized yes. the president to do this. Yes. And in some ways, well, first, the political aspect of this is the Republican Party has been devoted since the Roosevelt administration, with varying degrees, yep. some amelioration during the Eisenhower period, to destroying the New Deal. That's exactly what's And that's what this is about. That's his, I completely agree with you, Bill. This, this is an echo of something that goes back to the 1930s Supreme Court called the non-delegation doctrine. And, and when the Supreme Court was up to this in the last days of the old Supreme Court before the, uh, uh, President Roosevelt began making appointments, the court took the view that Congress could not give to the new then federal administrative state the power to make regulations. All the substantive decisions had to be made by Congress. Now, even if uh, you didn't have this crippling aim that the right has always had in mind, this was always a terrible idea, simply, Bill, because of the question you raised. Congress cannot never has been able to anticipate every issue that is going to arise under a law that they pass. So quite sensibly, they uh, adopt very general standards and assume a degree of expertise, which is usually there. I used to be a lawyer for the education department. The people who work there know what they're doing. 
and specifically authorize the Department of Education or the Environmental Protection Agency or other federal because they are the experts and they give them the authority to make these decisions and regulations. They give them the authority to be flexible, to respond to unforeseen situations, to use their expertise. The aim of this major questions doctrine is to end that and to take advantage of the extreme dysfunction that we see in our Congress where nothing really happens, uh, at least nothing very specific, usually nothing at all. And the result is that the agencies can't act at all. We saw this during uh, the height of COVID when uh, two important programs adopted by the uh, Biden administration, uh, the, the uh, forgiveness of, of, of rent um, and the, the mandate of either testing or masks in the workplace were struck down by the Supreme Court. It is in those cases that this doctrine was invented out of whole cloth. Well, it's out of an ideological view of the world that yeah. hates government. That's right. Government shouldn't be... That's right. Well, hates, hates, hates government if government is doing things in the marketplace that interfere with a particular conception of how markets ought to operate that the right wing has which is that they never ought to be regulated or supervised by government. They just ought to be bailed out. Uh, that's, what's, that's essentially what's, uh, what's, what's, what's going on here. And, and uh, we, 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 we will see. It, it seems clear to me that, that there are five votes, probably six votes, for applying the major questions doctrine here. I have a question for you, yeah. former... Uh, longtime constitutional law professor at Western New England University School of Law, now Professor Emeritus. Bruce Miller, I see the Supreme Court is when they don't have the facts to support the decision they want to make, as in the case involving the prayer on the 50-yard line. They simply invented the facts and made up new facts. And when they don't like a precedent, as in the question of Roe v. Wade, they just change the precedent. And when they don't have a doctrine that will get them the result, they create a new idea. They call it a doctrine as if it somehow has existed in the past. They create an entirely new legal fiction, and that becomes the law of the land, and they call it a doctrine. That's right. So if you don't have the facts and create the facts, if you don't have the law, create the law. And if you don't like the previous law, just change it. This is not law. This is raw political power. This is the exercise of political power through uh, law. And, and what, it, what it will do um, as it proceeds is to create uh, a great deal of cynicism uh, amongst uh, the American people as to whether we actually have anything that we can call rule of law anymore. Well, this one creates a great deal of pain. Yeah. But I, I just want it, to, it's been going on forever that we have executive orders by the executive branch, by the president. And there's usually controversy about whether that's something that Congress should undertake or the president there should is. undertake. We sh- There was a spotlight on that issue of yes. executive orders during Trump and subsequently yes. during Biden and even during Obama's. Exactly. Where should the presidential authority begin and end? But this is under this guise of it's a major question because it's a yeah. big yes. Event, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Many questions of executive power. Don't get me wrong; are extremely vexing and difficult, and we have lived through periods of abuse of presidential power by both parties. 
But, Buzz, as you point out, this one is an easy case because we've got statutory language that comes about as close to a specific uh, authorization, waive or modify. Well, what do you want? This is a waiver and a modification. It's squarely within that language. And this is something that Justice Kagan kept trying to come back to over and over in the argument last week and, and, and could really never get a response uh, from, from the lawyers for the challengers. But waive or modify in general does not, in fairness, I yep. suppose yeah. we should use that word, does not cover specifically COVID or a major health crisis. It, it, These it, are it student debt indebtedness. This is yes. student debt that goes back decades. Yes, exactly right. Waive or modify in the event of an emergency. Undefined in the statute, who has the power to define an emergency? Well, if there's going to be an emergency, it's going to have to be the agency. Um, COVID was, was, you know, in our lifetimes, remarkably, remarkably unprecedented as a public health emergency, at least so it, so it seemed to, to, to me. And, and so the education department was, was within its power to uh, declare an emergency. And once that emergency is there, this is a waiver or modification of the terms of the loan program. Um, and, and all you could ask for beyond that is what you said in your first question, Bill, is, is for Congress in 2003 to have guessed that the specific emergency would be COVID or that the method of the modification would be um, a forgiveness. Uh, but uh, if you've got a statute, this, this, is, this is a statute that, uh, if you need a statute, this is a statute that, uh, that does the trick. Yeah, I think we shouldn't lose sight. We're going we're gonna to take a break. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the question of student debt, yep. the burden of student debt, predated COVID. That Absolutely. there was, on the federal level, on the state level, we've been trying to find... A solution because so many millions of people are literally in, incapable. They get their degrees, yes. they enter the job market, yep. and they just can't seem to save money because of yep. these crippling loans that they've been throttled with. Where a lot of Germany has free public yes. higher education, and and people walk out, they get a job, and they're productive members of society yep. because they don't yes. have to pay these crippling yep. debts. Yep. We're going to continue our conversation about major questions doctrine. I say that tongue in cheek with Professor Bruce Miller right after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-1240. WHMP. Hi. 
This is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Investing your money does not mean having to abandon your core values. Environmental and social governance investments, also called ESG investments, allow you to focus your money in businesses and industries that match your environmental and social values and avoid those which do not. Environmental and social governance investments let you put your money where your values are. ESG investments are just one example of how we create individually designed portfolio management plans for our clients. To learn more about ESG investing in our portfolio management services and for a free consultation, call us at 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section of our website at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, offering portfolio management, estate settlement, and trust administration services. Call 413-775-8335 or go to the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is the first Monday in March, which means uh, for Bill and I, it's a very exciting time because that's when Professor Emeritus Bruce Miller comes in as a constitutional observer and scholar, shares his thoughts with us, and we're talking about major questions doctrine. Um, Bruce, Part of the issue here involves uh, the question of standing. Article 3 of the Constitution, Article 1 creates the legislature, Article 2, an executive branch, and Article 3, the third branch, the independent judiciary, and says that for it to have jurisdiction over something, it must be an actual case or controversy. How does that bear on this issue of student debt? Well, this case or controversy idea is is really uh, essential to our concept of judicial review. We don't have a court system that gets to just jump in whenever they want to and take a question on because they think it was a good idea. Their job is to remedy injuries that people suffer just that wanna... are I- I- illegally inflicted. I just want to clarify what you just said. Sure. Here in Massachusetts, the legislature could ask the attorney general's office for an opinion. We could. If we did this, would that be constitutional? Can Congress do that? Congress cannot. In Each of the states can if they want. And Massachusetts is among a few that have authorized their courts to issue advisory opinions under narrow circumstances, not the federal courts. And this has been true since the 1790s. There is a whole area of law called standing to sue that measures whether or not the person asking for judicial action has suffered an injury that entitles them to judicial relief. We don't have a plaintiff, a sewer, sewer, (laughs) S-U-E-R, in in either of these cases that the court heard uh, last week that has been harmed in any way. The government is giving a, a significant, essential benefit to students um, uh, who, who owe, owe money on their loans. But the plaintiffs here are the states. 
the states are in no way harmed by, by the fact that the, uh, that the government is doing this. The plaintiffs in the second case are two individuals who do not qualify for the forgiveness because their loans came from private banks. And they say they are injured because other people are getting a benefit that they are not getting. The court has never recognized a, a wish to deprive other people of a benefit as creating an injury for a person who doesn't like it. So you think the Supreme Court shouldn't even have jurisdiction over uh, this case? I don't think any federal court should have had jurisdiction over this case. And if we take uh, some previous decisions of, of this Supreme Court seriously, uh, they would have described the alleged injuries suffered by the states and these uh, un unhappy non-qualifiers as the psychological injury that one experiences when the government is doing something they don't like. And that is uh, not enough to give rise to standing. If it were, there can be psychological harms. Those can present hard cases. But the idea that just opposing a program injures you is something that the court has never allowed before, uh, but it looks like they're going to allow it here because they have to in order to get to this major questions doctrine. If so there's are, no are jurisdiction, there's no case. And if there's no case, uh, there's no decision on whether or not the, the loans can be forgiven. I, I don't know how to put this in a... a moderated kind of way, modulated kind of way. But f frankly, when this court, as it did at oral argument, indicated, we're going to give you standing so we can destroy this program because we don't like it, they're lying. They're doing it with a lot of fancy words, but the court's essentially being fundamentally dishonest. This is, this is a very ambitious court. We have had ambitious courts before. Uh, but they have been ambitious courts uh, in, in service of, of a, a particular conception of, of American democracy. The Warren Court's uh, expansion of constitutional rights was, was very ambitious. But what we've got here, I, as, I, as I see it, is a court that is uh, ambitious to serve the interests of one of the two parties um, in, in our uh, political system. And corporations. System. Well, and, and underneath that, corporations, and I'm, I'm saying that because the, the, the Republican Party serves the interests of corporations at least more um, openly and consistently than the more centrist Democratic Party does. But what you're explaining, Bruce Miller, is it's so much more important. This question of standing is an important one. If it is. I, if, if Congress does affordable housing yeah. under Section yes. 8 yeah. subsidies, yes. I'm not a beneficiary of it. That's right. I have the right to go into court and challenge it because right. I'm not a beneficiary yep. of it or of the GI Bill or of a thousand yes. other initiatives yes. that we have. Yep. It's very dangerous. Well, it, it's, it's extremely dangerous. Imagine if in, in Brown against the board, probably the most iconic Supreme Court decision of all time and the sort of centerpiece of, of, of the Warren period, um, imagine if there had not been injured school children who were being denied a desegregated education, bringing that case. Imagine if the Supreme Court had just said, we don't like segregation. We think it's unconstitutional, and we will so declare it, regardless of whether anybody's complaining about it. Uh, well, you know, I, I saw impeach Earl Warren signs all over the place when I was growing up in California. 
I think if the court had, uh, had done it without this idea of an injured plaintiff to legitimize the exercise of judicial power, Warren might have been impeached. Uh, it's, an, it's an important concept because uh, it, it, it gives the court a defined non-political role that is steeped in the rule of law tradition that goes you know, back to the Magna Carta. The point of the legal system is to remedy injuries that people suffer, not to give courts the final say on everything. If this court doesn't have a doctrine or a precedent that gets it to the result it wants, it invents it and it said it will. If we don't like the precedent, we say it's wrong. That's right. If we don't like the facts, we'll, we'll just take alternative facts. That's right. And if we don't have uh, a theory, we'll invent a theory right. and call it a doctrine, and that will give it real well, that's all, that's all true. Real but, heft. And, but of course, you know, in, in, in my view, Bill, we can't, we can't go too far with this because there, it, it's important that precedents be open to change. It's important that questions be uh, amenable to re-argument. But when they're re-argument, be re-argued, there has to be some kind of a principle that the person who's saying we got to reconsider this can appeal to, a principle that would be uh, broadly uh, accepted uh, by, by American citizens. And, and this court is in, inattentive, I think, to the need for principled decision-making. Well, I think that's a very general way to, to say, to expand on what Bill was just talking about. I think we, uh, in the couple of minutes we have left, we, all three of us who are attorneys, um, we came to a point where we understood that in order to avoid tyranny, we have to have a rule of law. The rule of law lays out certain doctrines and, and uh, certain uh, deferential viewpoints about the role of Congress versus the role of the executive branch. And if we have a court doing exactly as Bill said, just making stuff up because ideologically it wants to further its own view, what does that do, Professor Bruce Miller? What does that do to the notion of a rule of law? Well, it, 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 it undermines it, and, and it's always been true. Uh, you know, Hamilton pointed this out to us in the Federalist Papers. Supreme Court doesn't have the purse. It doesn't have the sword. It has only judgment. And if it is seen to be abandoning the art of judgment, people no longer have any reason to respect it. And, you know, if we lose respect for the aspiration to operate legally, we've lost, I, I don't want to say everything, but we've lost a hell of a lot. It seems to me that it's really important that those justices wear those black robes because that gives them an aura of respectability and intelligence and judgment. They were just seen as regular people. They'd be viewed as smart political hacks at this point. I think that's right. So this is Dan. Quick question. What happened uh, to conservative belief in originalism? Well, uh, conser conservative belief in, in originalism has, as I think, always been a, a will of the wisp. That is, it's something that conservatives have seized on when they suspect that uh, using uh, uh, the words originalism or original intent will get them where they want to mm. go. Um, I think that's always been the case w with most versions of, of, of originalism and still is. 
you know, we, we, this this is a show for another time. But the best example of that is in the Supreme Court's view of the Second Amendment, where mm-hmm. in, in, in decisions that purport to be originalist, the court has invented on, out of whole cloth an individual right to publicly carry firearms under just about any circumstances, something the framers would never have envisioned. Right. Well, the reason I asked that question is because it sounds to me like they are now just giving up on even trying to pretend like there is a doctrine and I'll just, hey, I'll make it up because I want to get that end. Well, I, so I th- that's, I th- that's what I I'm hearing that, from you. I think, that, I think that's right. But it's with any, with any principle theory or, or originalism and, or any other, it seems to me they're, they're, they've stopped at least publicly uh, th- thinking mm-hmm. about that, probably mm-hmm. privately as well. Well, thank you so much. We enjoy so much and learn so much from you, Professor Bruce Miller, on First Monday. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have Megan Zinn's Writer's Block. It's going to be a particularly interesting one today. Oh. Be right back. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Three new restaurants could be coming to Northampton. The License Commission approved a transfer of a wine and malt license that previously belonged to Wine Witch to the Gumbo Oyster Bar that will open at the same location on Main Street. The Commission also approved a license for a new coffee shop planned for Florence and new restaurant called the Saratoga Sports Bar, also planned for Florence. UMass is warning about a TikTok drinking trend after 28 ambulances were summoned to off-campus parties during the Blarney blowout weekend. Students were observed carrying jugs with a mixture of alcohol, electrolytes, flavoring, and water, dubbed blackout rage gallons, or Borgs, in a binge-drinking trend gaining traction on TikTok. There were so many calls for ambulances for student alcohol intoxication that neighboring agencies had to step in to help. In a statement, the university said the weekend's events will be assessed and steps will be taken to improve alcohol education. A Florence man was arrested on Friday after a hit-and-run that left two police cruisers damaged. This happened around 6.20 p.m. Northampton officers got a report of a hit-and-run where the suspect's vehicle had crashed into another car and then fled the scene. The officers found the vehicle and attempted to do a traffic stop, but the vehicle failed to stop. The vehicle crashed into a curb, causing multiple tires to pop, but the suspect still did not stop. The vehicle drove down another dead-end street and got to the point where he could not continue driving. The suspect got out of the vehicle and fled. He was quickly arrested. Due to the multiple crashes in Northampton, the entire shift was on this call, including officers from the midnight shift who were contacted to report in early to assist. For today, it'll be mostly sunny and breezy. Highs 42 to 46. Tonight, look for increasing clouds. Overnight lows 22 to 26. And the outlook for Tuesday, chance for a rain or snow shower in the morning, otherwise mostly cloudy. Highs in the upper 30s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. In today's competitive hiring environment, job seekers demand stability, competitive salary, generous benefits, 
work-life balance, and a path to retirement. The Massachusetts Department of Correction can offer all of those things. This is the perfect time to join the team as a correction officer and take advantage of the accelerated hiring process in a career that's challenging yet rewarding and allows one to make a positive difference in the lives of others by providing custody care and support programs for those under supervision. Salaries start at $62,000 and include a pension plan, health, dental, and vision insurance, as well as paid sick, personal, and comp time. Get full pay during your academy training, education pay, tuition reimbursement, and the option of early retirement after 20 years. If you have never considered a career in corrections, now is the perfect time. Apply today at mass.gov doc-recruitment. Start your rewarding career at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Paid for by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. On Tuesday, March 21st, Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts invites you to attend our annual Celebrity Bartender event from 5 to 8 p.m. at the Student Prince. This year's celebrity lineup includes Al Casper, Savage Arms, Amanda Garcia, Elms College, Brian Hauser, Police Motor Group, Matt McGuire, TD Bank, Carla Casenzi, Tommy Carr Auto Group, Mayor Dominic Sarno, and Rock 102's own Steve Nagel. All are welcome as we raise support for JA's work inspiring youth to succeed in the Pioneer Valley since 19. 19- 19. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it is time for Writer's Block with Megan Zinn, who introduces us every week to members of the literati community. (laughs) Megan, what do we have? Who do we have to meet this week? My guest is writer Jennifer Rosner. Jennifer is the author of the novel The Yellow Bird Sings, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, and the memoir If a Tree Falls, A Family's Quest to Hear and Be Heard about Raising Her Deaf Daughters in a Hearing-Speaking World, and a children's book, The Mitten Spring, which is a Sidney Taylor Book Award notable. Jennifer lives here in Western Mass, and Jennifer's new novel, Once We Were Home, will be released on Tuesday, March 14th, so a week from tomorrow, And on that day, she'll have an in-person book launch at Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley on, again, on Tuesday, March 14th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more details about that on the Odyssey website. And welcome, Jennifer. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us um, us the basics of of Once We Were Home, about the story. The story is about um, four children who have been stolen from a place of home, Uh, just in the wake of World War II and their struggles um, afterward to find a sense of belonging and um, rootedness and um, a sense of identity and new faith, et cetera, um, after the kind of rupture that occurred in their lives. And then um, these stories that are all from really different cases end up converging Mm -hmm. in the end, yeah. Yeah. And I know it's not a, a sequel to your earlier novel, The Yellowbird Sings, but I understand that it kind of grew out of that. Can you tell us about tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so The Yellowbird Sings was about um, hiddenness and about a mother and daughter who were um, in hiding during World War Two. And actually, mm-hmm. I did a lot of interviewing of hidden children for that novel. And while I was talking to a man who had been hidden, he actually said, you know, you should talk to my wife. She has a really interesting story, too. And this woman had, after the war, she had been actually um, in a labor camp in Siberia, cutting down mm-hmm. primordial forests. Wow. <laughs> and um, she came back to her native Poland, where only 3% of Jewish children had survived, most of them hidden in, in Christian settings. And um, 
she joined this mission to try to reclaim these remaining Jewish children after all the annihilation that had occurred for Jews. And um, she, you know, a lot of this was negotiation. There were court cases, et cetera. They were offering money to these families who had really rescued these children, um, had harbored them during the war. But when they wouldn't, if there was a family that wouldn't give up a child, Mm -hmm. they would resort to other means. And sometimes it meant just going into the fields at dusk and taking the children. And so she described this kind of operation of getting back these Jewish orphans. And it was really morally fascinating to me because, Mm -hmm. you know, in her mind, she was saving Jews. She was returning the Jewish children to the fold. She was honoring the, the last wishes of these parents, to, you know, to leave Jewish descendants, yeah. et cetera. But for the individual children, um, sometimes mm-hmm. it was this huge rupture. And so there's sort of this moral question about, you know, what was this? And uh, was it stealing? Was it saving? You know, what was it? It might have depended on the individual child. Um, and I also think it's really interesting because at that time, it's almost like we don't have a vocabulary for what that was because mm-hmm. um, the children had no parents. They had no papers. They were, you know, harbored yeah. in this place. But for some of them, they felt they were at home now, especially the younger kids who didn't have a, mm-hmm. any memory of their earlier homes. And, um, right. you know, so that was this mixed up thing. So after learning about that whole mission, I then ended up learning of other cases of child stealings that were under very different circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I decided to just weave together these different stories yeah. of, of stealings and, you know, the impact it had on, on those uh, young children of the war. Yeah. My guest is Jennifer Rosner, author of Once We Were Home. Tell us a little bit more about your research. Um, what what surprised you or impacted you the most in, in these stories that you found? I mean, there were constant surprises. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing is there was a scholar who looked at the stealing of the, that was, there was a case of stealings, the sort of famous case of two boys in France who were hidden in a kind of convent. And when surviving relatives, family came to reclaim him, uh, the church actually illicitly baptized him and took uh, these children and took them on the run, trying to save their souls, you know, so there was Mm -hmm, all this mm -hmm. kind of saving, you know, or or in people's minds, you know, we're going to the Jews are going to get the Jews back and the Christians are trying to save these children too. And then there were these cases of, um, you know, Germanization of Polish children, where they were just taken from their families and put into these Germanization centers if the features matched, you know, if the caliper tests and the eye charts and all the stuff matched, they could go into these Germanization centers. And probably in those people's minds, it would be better for those children to be German than to be Polish. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there was just all this ideology and um, adults moving children around, you know, in accordance with their views. And no one really thinking about, you know, the attachments of the children, the bonds they were having, you know, or mm-hmm. being ruptured, et cetera. And, um, yeah, it was just and, – and, you know, the thing is that this stuff keeps happening, right? There are Russian soldiers taking Ukrainian children. There are court cases wow. about, um, you know, na- Native American children and where they belong or, with, yeah. you know, the mm-hmm. white adoptive family or their Native tribe. I mean, there's all these kind of things going on all the time where we're moving children around, Um yeah. Well, I have to ask, yeah. Megan, uh, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Rosner, what did the kids say, the now grown up kids say, who were adopted, and I assume had a relationship with the people who adopted them, what did they say about the stealing? Yeah, there, so, so again, there were various reactions, mm-hmm. and that was what was interesting about all of this. So the operatives, there was this big mix of kind of retrospective thinking about what they did, mm-hmm. and the children as mm-hmm. well. So some of those children 
you know, had had some serious psychic damage from being moved yeah. first from their initial family and then from the next family they bonded to. And then they were brought not necessarily to a family because their parents had died. They would be brought to, you know, an orphanage or a kibbutz or, or some such, at least in the case of the, the Jewish children. And um, and also even the Germanized children, if they were young enough, they ended up in a you know, family of Germans, and and they felt close to them. And then when the after the war, when the UNRRA was trying to repatriate those children and make amends for the stealing, some of those children didn't want to leave because this German home was all they knew. So it was right, it was really insane. Yeah. I mean, there you know, it was sort of rupture after rupture, and there was a real mix of reaction. And then there was sort of the retrospective adjustment. So. In some cases, they ended up feeling grateful that they had become returned to their Jewish roots or something. But it was a process of integration and then like a recalibration of what had happened to them, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's there's never uh, there's a never ending supply of these shocking and stories coming out of that experience of World War II and the Holocaust, and of course other historical experiences, but it's fascinating that it, that there's always new surprises, even this this far along. Um, so what, what, just to change slightly, what inspired you to write historical fiction, um, especially about World War II and the Holocaust and, and their legacy as, as, your, um, as your way of writing fiction? Yeah, um, I should say that my next project, first of all, Historical fiction can be so grueling because, you know, you mm-hmm. really want to get it right. But I thought that my next book should be taking place, like, in my room now. <laughs> so no one can say, really? Are you sure that happened? Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think that I was really interested in the notion of being hidden and, and hiding. Mm-hmm. And I think that came from raising deaf children and knowing that I had wow. deaf ancestors who were likely kind of shunted to the side um, in this, you know, sort of time where they were living in the 1800s. And so in a way, the choice to pick those particular hidden children, the hidden children of the Holocaust, um, I think it was something because of my family's past and um, yeah. heritage, et cetera, that I related to and then, you know, made certain choices of having a, this child be a violinist, which had to do very personally with, you know, my father's instrument, et cetera, and, and some mm-hmm. other stories of, you know, I, you know, these... Um, I, I needed a string instrument involved, et cetera, for, for personal reasons. And so, you know, it, it kind of evolved that way. It wasn't, um, I didn't set out in some way to, like, explore this this time period. Jennifer Rossner, okay. I, I'd like mm-hmm. to ask you a question. This is Bill. Your historical fiction, as you've pointed out, goes to great lengths to be historically accurate. The story is so gripping because it's so accurate. And I'm wondering if in doing your research, for this book, you were struck by the resonance that he had, that it has, that the story has with Trump's family separation programs. Hmm. Your yeah. thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, I have thought a lot about that for actually both the novels I had, I had uh, written. And, um, you know, I think that that is the, the feeling is that this stuff that we talk about from the past is currently occurring mm-hmm. and that the questions of identity that the children are facing are the same questions. So I, so I, you know, in the, in the case of, um, you know, the World War II where people finally after the war were trying to become connected again to their families, you know, they had, they didn't, first of all, have very much 
technological help. So it's not like you could Google your family and find them. You would come off yeah. like a train station. There'd be some like fence and there'd be like a thousand papers tacked to it with information you're supposed to go through and try to find your family again. Or they created these registries and it was very hard to find accurate information. And, you know, at the Holocaust Museum, they have this program called Remember Me where there's like photos of people and there, there's this thing, Remember Me. And it's not like a, it's not like a, rhetorical questions like really if you remember me tell me because I could then find my family if I look familiar mm -hmm. to my you know I look like my Aunt Frida or something and wow. the thing with the children separated from their families at the border is you know how are they going to get reconnected you know um, is a lot of these children were young they don't necessarily know their family name they don't know their parents name they know mama and papa and all this other thing and not necessarily mm -hmm. a child like the real way to get back and to be reunited. And I think so. We are going to be in this similar situation of these ruptures and then this seek search for identity and struggle to find family again. And it's it's as fraught as it was. Remember yeah. the old days when we used to benefit from looking at history, standing on the shoulders of those who came before us and seeing what they saw, but with a better perspective? Well, somehow we've lost that perspective. This is yeah. Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. We're going to take a break. Yeah. Back with Jennifer right after this. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee. Maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sauteed to perfection, including kale. 
or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non-toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our weekly uh, segment, Writer's Block with Megan Zinn. Megan, I want to thank you for bringing Jennifer Rosner to our attention today. My pleasure. And Jennifer's uh, new novel, which we're discussing, Once We Were Home, is uh, going to be launching at, um, we're going to have a launch event at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley on Tuesday, March 14th at 7 p.m. And you can find out more details about that event on the Odyssey Bookstore website. Um, and Jennifer, we, you, you mentioned a bit how this story came out of your experience as a hearing parent raising deaf children. And we talked a bit at the break about how this um, the experiences of um, the separation of parents and their children um, and the parents with different experiences of their children um, resonates with you again as, as a parent as a hearing parent of deaf children. Can you tell us a bit about that and how the the story of the um, the stolen children um, resonated with you? Yeah. So. You know, when we had our our children and and they were diagnosed deaf, we had to make this big decision about you know communication pathways and whether they would mm-hmm. we would bring them into the hearing world or whether they would join the signing deaf world, which we weren't a part of. And um, I ended up actually writing a piece of a piece for the New York Times about how in 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 pretty much every case a, a you know a, a, ch- a parent births a child and that child inherits the language and culture of their of their parents, mm-hmm. right? Um, but in the case of deafness, there's this big debate about whether the, you know, whether hearing parents should be raising deaf children and and um, whether they should at least raise them with technology and, and spoken language or whether they should be in a signing mm-hmm. world. And I actually got comments from people, you know, she shouldn't be raising her children. She has no no idea how it wow. is to, to be parenting deaf children. Those children should be taken from her. I mean, there were those kinds wow. of claims. Um, and That's it was startling to, to hear mm-hmm. people say that. And um, I think that, you know, when I heard of this story of, you know, these adults sort of trying to determine where a child belongs based on their ideological beliefs mm-hmm. and not on the children's bonds or the family bonds or any of the things that to me feel like the key to what a family should be about. Um, that's kind of what instigated, I think, my deep interest in this topic in some way, or it was like the personal driver. And so, you know, you hear these really interesting stories and you, you know, maybe you'll write a novel about it, but to write a novel, you have to go to your desk every single day. And um, it's those kind of deep psychological drivers, I think, that really move a person to to do that kind of work. And um, for me, that was probably the personal driver. 
Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Um, and was this book? Um, can can I can I assume that the book was sort of conceived and written during the pandemic, or had you done a lot of work before the pandemic? Um, it was written during the pandemic. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to travel to Israel. You know, just um, pretty much. You know, when things. Um, it felt safe enough to go. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, there were historians in Israel who were specifically working on this issue who have basically interviewed every person who's been involved in either the operation of, you know, retrieving or, you know, there's like a liter, there's actually like a, a real um, kind of debate about the language to use for what this was. Was it retrieval? Was it reclamation? Was it redeeming? Mm-hmm. Was it mm-hmm. ransoming? <laughs> you know, what, what was this move or in that particular one? And of course, I also wanted to travel to Marseille because the convent mm-hmm. child that I have created is living in, in Marseille. But I, I couldn't quite justify that one, that one because I could find a lot of information online and it was still, oh. you know, tricky to be tra- traveling, et cetera. So, yeah. 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 A boat trip to Marseille would be lovely. It would. Um, and so tell us, um, uh, this is Jennifer Rosner, and uh, we're talking about her book. Um, the uh, Let's blank on that once we were home, sorry. Um, and well, tell us what you're working on now. Yeah, I've started a new novel. I'm at the very, very beginning of it. It actually also um, does, it is sort of a return for me to the topic of deafness, because I have been reading things and feel that things are so, so biased in one way or another that I read, and especially in the fiction world, and um, I decided that what I really want to do is try to, first of all, launch some some children, some characters that people will really deeply identify with and maybe love, and then kind of throw all the different aspects of the debate into it, like start voicing mm-hmm. every part of the conversation. And you'll hear that in, you know, from the hearing world, from the deaf world, I mean, there's good points and there's, you know, really crazy reasoning on every side. And um, it's kind of what we walked into, um, you know, as parents, just kind of like stumbling into the situation <laughs> and finding how, how hard it is. But um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, and it's it's such an interesting story because it's the opposite side of the coin of Coda, which won the the, um, the Academy Award last year of of um, you know the hearing children of of deaf adults, and um, so it's it's an interesting flip on on that story. Um, so we've been talking with Jennifer Rosner, whose new novel Once We Were Home will be released next. Tuesday, March 14th, and she's having an in-person book launch at Odyssey Bookshop on the 14th, on Tuesday, at 7 p.m. And uh, tell us where, where you can, we can find the book. Yeah, I mean, hopefully every local bookstore mm-hmm. should be carrying my novel. So around here, you know, hopefully Broadside and Amherst Books and the Odyssey and, and all the other Early ones, the all the other beautiful bookstores around. Um, and it's also available at bookshop.org um, and, and any other place you buy your books. Well, we thank you Wonderful. so much for joining us um, today. Megan, writer's block, as always, is just so interesting and important and informative. And Jennifer Rosner, good luck with Once We Were Home and good luck with your Odyssey event. And everybody else, thank you for joining Talk to Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We'll be back tomorrow. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front 
to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.